This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this afternoon across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff. The European Union is looking at several changes to animal welfare regulations that could seriously impact Australian farmers. If we were to have a prohibition of castration and tar docking, that would significantly change the pressures that producers experience and uh, really a rethink on the enterprise based on the costs associated with managing animals according to best practice. Tail docking, electric prods, even castration are being considered as part of this. I'll have more on what wool producers think of these ideas. That does sound uh, quite uh, broad in its scope, that that uh, look that the European Union is doing. That's so we'll have more on that soon. And an agronomist has some words of wisdom for people who might be putting off summer weed spraying due to the cost. That's coming up in the next 15 minutes or so. But first up today... Getting a decent home internet connection is hard in the country, let alone having a connection reliable enough to run machinery or make a video call from the paddock. Yet digital agriculture presents a $15 billion opportunity for the industry, according to NBN. So to try and make the most of this opportunity, NBN Head of Segment for Agriculture, Robert Hardy, tells Eliza Berlage the corporation is hosting discussions with farmers, lobby groups and retail service providers this week and uh, here's some of what they discussed. So the consultation that we're undertaking is helping us understand if we were to develop some kind of quality assurance mark that might give a, a farmer greater understanding of exactly what product to buy to enable them to extend the connection that they might already have at home into other parts of the business, whether it's literally across the track into the shed or down to the back paddock. We want to understand how that might look. So is a farmer interested in something which is low or high bandwidth? These are really important questions to understand whether a device that you're going to invest in and and deploy across your property is going to enable you to do the things you want to do in your digital journey. So we're hoping that through our consultation, we'll understand the interests of both pre-farm gate and post-farm gate, so the types of infrastructure they require, and then look at what types of things those devices can do. So are they designed for Australian conditions, for example? Do they need particular line of sight requirements? What is the power consumption of these devices? How much capacity does the NBN currently have to be used for ag tech? Uh, Look, we know that the NBN network is made for more and we know that the availability of our satellite network, which stretches right across the country, can enable farmers to get connected no matter where they are. Speed is always going to be an issue and we're working hard to do what we can within the bounds of the laws of physics to ensure that uh, the, the network can support the needs of farmers no matter where they are. Oftentimes, farming applications rely on low bandwidth transfer of information, so uh, whether something is on or off, there's, there's movement or whatever, uh, and those sorts of networks, when they're partnered with an NBN network, can then extend in, in great long distances. So we know that the network can support the things. We've been doing some case studies with uh, some partners in Western Victoria and Western Australia to understand how our network can support IoT networks, that's Internet of Things, Things networks, such as weather stations. 
applications such as in paddock dialing, Wi-Fi calling, and uh, the, the trial that took place in Western Victoria, for example, the property had been in a black spot. We connected it to our fixed wireless network and that enabled them to undertake Teams meetings while they were out in the paddock, something they never dreamed they could possibly have done in the past. And in Western Australia, the remote weather station is enabling the transfer of information in real time back to headquarters so that the property manager can better understand exactly what's going on at a particular point in time. That type of information is really important to the way in which modern agriculture can transform and take advantage of more information to make more informed decisions. Why now with this paper? So there's been obviously a number of submissions made and there has been a report tabled on improving regional telecommunications, but we're waiting to see that report publicly. Is this something that might feed in to some of that information when it's released? We see this as part of the, the journey that agriculture has been on over some time. Obviously, the drought and in the recent past has placed pressures on farmers' bottom line. Now is a really great time for industry as it looks down the, the barrel of being worth $78 billion by the end of June next year, this year. Uh, we see this as a great opportunity for farmers to be looking at how they can invest in the types of connectivity and telecommunications solutions that, that will benefit their business and build resilience for their business going forward. So um, this has been uh, a body of work, fits in with some work NBN has been doing around improving digital capability. Earlier last year, we launched a product called uh, the Digital Capability Tool, which enables farmers, indeed any internet user across Australia, to determine their own level of digital literacy and importantly, map out a journey for improving or understanding where areas of opportunity might be to improve digital literacy and capability, to feel safe online and understand how different devices operate. In the Digital Agriculture Toolkit, which is something that I sometimes refer to, once you've worked out your own capability and your business's readiness to adopt digital, then we can move on to questions about, well, how do I actually go about connecting my landscape? This body of work is very much focused on helping farmers understand what that opportunity is, grasping that opportunity, and working towards implementing and, and investing in the types of telecommunications infrastructure that will enable their businesses to flourish now and into the future. MBN Head of Segment for Agriculture, Robert Hardy, speaking with Eliza Berlage. And internet connection and mobile connection are often raised as some of the biggest limitations in agriculture. So hopefully some of those issues can be addressed with the, uh, the money that's being thrown at and the discussions they're having to try and improve the situation for farmers. We'll keep across uh, what they come up with on this program. But we'll turn to Europe now because the European Union has been looking at several changes to animal welfare regulations that could seriously affect Australian farmers. Among the changes are limits to the use of electric prods, increased space allocations and a potential ban on caged egg production. But probably more significantly, the EU is considering a ban on tail docking and castration, which could be applied directly onto imports or through a system that would label produce as not raised in line with EU standards. Luke Radford spoke with Adam Dawes, who is the General Manager of Wool Producers Australia, who made a submission to the EU on these potential changes. As many listeners will know, we undertake uh, castration and tail docking for animal welfare purposes, both through managing animals for fly strike and the likes, and also to make sure that we're able to manage animals according to a fixed predetermined uh, reproduction cycle. With our extensive production systems, if we were to have a prohibition of castration and tail docking, that would significantly change 
the pressures that producers experience and uh, really a rethink on the enterprise based on the, um, the costs associated with managing animals according to best practice. It's probably unlikely that the EU would ban all imports from Australia overnight. So what's more likely to happen uh, if they push ahead with it? Look, that's why Wool Producers has put a submission in to try and highlight the relative differences in what's required to manage animals according to best practice in different areas. So, you know, what we're really quite concerned about, as you've alluded to, Luke, it probably wouldn't lead to a ban, but what we could actually end up happening is that Australia or goods containing Australian products in the EU, if they weren't compliant with EU regulations, which might include the prohibition of tail dogging and castration, could be labelled indicating that they don't comply with EU animal welfare rules and that could potentially mislead consumers because it's not a binary process of black or white. You know, if operations like tail docking and castration are done according to best practice for lifetime animal welfare outcomes, they can be a really positive thing on the animal's overall wellbeing. Speaking of both tail docking and castration, tail docking, obviously, we have seen some growth of, of short-tailed merinos. It's not particularly common at the moment, but it is theoretically possible. Um, but that being said, on the other side of things, castration is absolutely essential. Why are they looking at banning that? Yeah, I think it's due to the perception that castration is unnecessary, particularly in some animals, you know, it might be the case. EU might be more so focused on pigs and the likes rather than sheep. Um, but it is quite hard to breed an animal that doesn't need castration. And particularly in Australia, if we think about in merino enterprises, um, you know, we're retaining weathers um, as they are post-castration, you know, until they're a number of years old. It's not like a, a lamb enterprise where, um, you know, we could potentially have cryptorchid animals or animals remaining intact and slaughtered relatively early. So really in those extensive production systems, you know, we do need the ability to castrate males and probably should add in there, you know, that we are seeing a fairly extensive adoption of pain management options across Australian sheep producers. And that's not just in relation to mulesing, that's for castration and tail docking. And Australia's got some of the most liberal registrations or some of the best grower access to pain management products for sheep. On castration, can you explain for an audience that may not understand why that's an important um, part of the farming process? I guess with particularly if we look at merino enterprises where, as I said before, animals are retained for a number of years, we don't necessarily have the need for all of the animals that we're retaining to be, I guess, sexually active and able to reproduce. Um, so what we can have is once we castrate animals, we start to eliminate the potential of having unplanned lambing or unplanned calving in the case of cattle. And we also see as well that there's less opportunity or less chance for animals to start to fight and exhibit some of those uh, behaviours that we might see more of animals that remain intact or rams in the case of sheep. Do you think this is because of a, a cultural difference between European farming and, and Australian farming? You did touch on that earlier. So I think in terms of the cultural differences, we need to understand what the European population or the European consumers of our products are expecting. But those expectations need to be set with some context. There needs to be an appreciation that farming in Australia is nothing like farming in the EU. And no doubt if we started to compare different farming zones in the EU, you know, the relative pressures that each of those zones are facing are not relevant to one another. Has the Australian government made much noise on this so far? It doesn't seem to have, have drummed up any particular press in Australia just yet that this is even being considered. 
We've had some good exchanges with our agricultural counsellor who's based in Brussels, who's done a fantastic job in supporting our submission to the EU. And we've also made some, um, some representations or shared motion on this review with likewise peak industry councils for, that might be impacted by this. In terms of the likelihood of this happening, based on what you've heard from Agricultural Council in Brussels, uh, based on what you've seen internationally, how likely do you think that this proposal is to get up? Look, I think it would be unlikely that a prohibition on trade would get up, but I do think it is a possibility that we could get labelling that potentially misleads consumers. We have seen some moves recently where the EU's looked to label natural fibres as having a greater environmental footprint than synthetic fibres. The textile industries that deal with natural fibres are working very hard now to make sure that we don't end up misleading consumers by labelling textiles in that way. And I think we've got an opportunity now to make sure that other animal products aren't labelled to mislead consumers that the animal welfare you know, from which the goods were derived has been somehow compromised. And actually, just briefly on wool, do you think that would impact demand from, for example, Italian um, fashion houses and mills for Australian wool? I think it could. I think we've got to recognise that when people purchase a wool garment, it's a very high quality garment and they want the complete package that goes with that. They want a garment that performs well and at the same time they also want a garment that has a good story and ticks all the boxes of their expectations. And we know the very fact that the EU is undertaking this review shows what the societal expectations there are. Well, producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes speaking with Luke Radford. And what do you make of uh, some of the things the EU is considering? It seems rather broad-reaching to be even including castration in there. You can call me on 0467 922 It's 18 minutes past 12. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Presented by ABC Rural and the Kandini Group. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Yes, I'm Cassie Half, and uh, speaking of Farmer of the Year Awards, South Australia hasn't actually had a winner for some time now, so I really would encourage uh, anyone out there who thinks they may be a Farmer of the Year or perhaps Young Farmer of the Year or even a researcher because uh, there is a lot of great research that happens in South Australia as well. Go to farmeroftheyear.com.au where you can click on the nominations button there because it would, as I was saying, be great to have some great South Australian farming and research recognised as part of those awards. I'll get to weather next, but uh, before we get there, get on with it is the message from one ag advisor to grain growers confronting summer weeds. Despite the high cost of chemical at the moment, Matt Whitney, agriculture advisor with uh, Dogshan Medlin in Swan Hill, says it's not hard to justify the expense. He says the importance of timely summer sprays can't be overstated. Oh, look, it's, it's very important, especially if it's done right. You know, you can't get your yields back once the moisture's gone. So the summer weed control has got to be done on a very timely manner and executed when the weeds say they need spraying. So typically, um, if we look on return on investment for summer spraying, uh, we usually work on about five to one for every dollar spent, if not six to one. So there's no better return on a farm than that. 
uh, if you spend a dollar on a farm and you get five or six dollars back, that's a great investment to make. So I think it's something that really needs to be highlighted. So Matt, obviously we're talking about, I suppose, spraying summer weeds so they don't use that moisture and that moisture stays there for the next year's crop. Uh, how big does a rainfall event need to be to be worried about preserving that moisture? Is there a certain cutoff where uh, below that then it's it's not going to soak into the subsoil anyway and it will just be lost through evaporation? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on the soil type. When you're talking sandy soils or clay, heavier clay soils and also the amount of rain. But typically for clay soils, the evaporation layers uh, 25 to 30 centimetres down. So as a rough rule, you know, a millimetre of rain will travel down about a centimetre in the soil. So you need about 25 millimetres to go down 25 centimetres, and that's typically your evaporation layer. So you're looking at rainfall events possibly over that 25, 30 mil to start going down below that layer. And once they go below that layer, it's been available in the crop that year. Very topical this summer, Matt, with lots of rain about. Uh, some summers, I suppose, you may get away without spraying. Others, you may need to spray multiple times. Uh, do you wait for all of those weeds to emerge and try and get away with one spray? Do you, do you go early and then be prepared to, to come back with a second spray for those late germinating weeds? Uh, what do you advise? Generally, we try and get weeds as early as we can because, A, um, they're a lot easier to kill and B, we preserve the most moisture because the small weeds haven't got an established root system that go down deep into the profile and grab any moisture. So if we're looking at, say, $25 a hectare for a spray application with chemicals and, and the application, and we do three summer sprays, that's going to cost about $75 a hectare. And if we save about 1.2 tonnes a hectare, um, roughly, uh, and wheat's worth $300 a tonne, you know, that's at least $370 a hectare benefit you get back. So when you divide the, the 75 into the, the 375, it's about a five to one return still. So there's still plenty of money there to play with, even if you are doing three summer sprays uh, and you've got the option to do it nice and early, do it because that's when you're going to save the most moisture and have the best result. You touched on this as well, Matt, and I'm not sure that you can really quantify it, but can you, I suppose in general terms, explain how much moisture is being extracted if you do have a scattering of those big weeds as compared to really small ones? The big ones are the biggest trouble because they, are, they have the capacity to draw a lot of moisture and summer weeds are specialised in extracting moisture in warm conditions. So as a rough rule of thumb, I've seen in the past you know, a large hoagie plant extract all the moisture in the profile from about a square metre. Now, obviously the plant density makes a big Big, uh, big part of how much moisture you lose in the paddock. But if you let summer weeds go, they will typically draw whatever moisture is in the profile and that can even leave you with a bit of a tax. And what I mean by a tax is that the rooting depth of summer weeds can sometimes go below what the, the rooting depth of the crops can. So you actually have to top up the profile even more because of this uh, the depth the summer weeds are drawing from. From your perspective, do you think this summer weed control is the biggest or one of the biggest differences between farmers who are growing those really high-yielding crops and those who aren't? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think generally what separates the better or the high-performing growers from others is the fact that they're organised and they're executing timing you know, really well on farm. So when you think about it, timing is actually free. It doesn't cost you anything. It's, just, it's up to you when you do it. But that has the most largest financial influences on farm. Some growers do actually create their own self-induced drought by not getting timing right, but it's free. And if people have good plans, execute their timings well, they give themselves the best chance to perform that season. 
That was Matt Whitney, Ag Advisor and Swan Hill, speaking with Angus Burley. Now I'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology, where Senior Forecaster Simon Timkey joins me. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So I understand there's a bit going on because you've got fire bans, total fire bans for the Mount Lofty Ranges, Lower South East, and uh, there's also a severe thunderstorm warning. What's happening? Yeah, we've got a, it's an interesting day today. We've got a change moving across from the west, just moving across uh, the far western parts of, uh, of Air Peninsula at the moment. We've seen the winds go round, right round to a south-southwesterly at Sejuna, uh, and temperatures just uh, 23, 24 degrees there at the moment. East of the change, though, the winds north to northeasterly and, and pretty hot too. So that change moving across brings some cooler conditions with it, sort of steadily moving across western and central parts during uh, the afternoon, reaching eastern districts in the evening, then pushing right up into the uh, to the far northeast uh, of the state during Wednesday. So in that uh, in those hotter north to northeasterly winds, there are those couple of districts in severe fire danger, the lower southeastern Mount Lofty ranges today. Um, and, and as that change moves across, a couple of storms around which may produce some uh, some gusty winds. So, at the moment, we're we're sort of we've got that warning area over um, southern part of Air Peninsula. Also, a couple of storms uh, um, up uh, near Tarkula at the moment. So we'll be we'll be watching those as well. So do do keep an eye on our uh, on our webpage for for the latest warnings today because there is some potential a little bit further further north as well. So we'll be we'll be monitoring that uh, through through the afternoon. Um, and as that change moves eastwards, obviously the the showers and uh, and possible storms moving moving eastwards as uh, as well. So hot to very hot today. Ahead of that change, bringing some uh, some milder conditions tomorrow. Rainfall totals wise, not expecting uh, any any big totals out of it today. Um, we might see some spots uh, get up to uh, um, five millimetres or so over the agricultural area. Eastern districts probably less than two. Um, and maybe some slightly higher f- local falls with thunderstorms, particularly out in the west, might see some falls up to 10 millimetres, maybe even the odd spot picking up 10 to 20. But uh, um, most of the rainfall I- is today. The next couple of days, mostly dry. Uh, I think for Wednesday, just a morning shower near western and southern coasts and also about eastern border districts. Those eastern bo- border districts, one will be pretty early in the morning and wouldn't expect any significant totals out of those. And Elsewhere across the state for Wednesday, dry. For Thursday morning, dry, uh, apart from some light showers, light morning showers about southern coasts and ranges. Uh, and again, not expecting any significant totals out of those showers either. Uh, and then Friday and Saturday, dry right across the state and we'll start to see the temperatures rise again towards the weekend. I think Saturday and Sunday both be uh, um, hot to very hot conditions right across the state. Um, and uh, uh, another change moving across late Sunday or early Monday will bring some some sort of milder conditions to uh, to uh, the coastal districts on Monday and more generally across the south of the state on uh, on Tuesday. So as far as any rainfall goes, today is the most significant day out of the next week, plus a couple of light showers for for Wednesday and Thursday. So like I said. Uh, Generally less than five millimetres over the uh, over the agricultural area, maybe pushing into the northwest pastoral and the southern parts of the northeast pastoral. Generally less than two over the eastern districts, and possible five to ten, maybe the odd local fall of ten to twenty with thunderstorms. So, not a lot of rain for the next week ahead, especially after today, Cassie. No, it's uh, certainly starting to to look quite dry. But um, the, I feel like this thunderstorm sort of blew up out of nowhere. I wasn't, I guess, I wasn't expecting it, but maybe you guys were. 
Yeah, we did have sort of earlier in the morning, we had a couple right up in the far northwest and like the ones further south today, there, there was some potential for some damaging uh, gusts up there. But of course, we don't get many observations up that way. So we had a did have a warning out for sort of an area well, well to the northwest of Cooper Pedy, um, but that's sort of uh, um, weakened off a little bit now, and the main focus looks to be a, a, a little bit further south. So, something interesting for people uh, to keep an eye out for uh, later on in the afternoon. Absolutely, and keep listening to the ABC if you want more updates on that. Thank you so much, Simon Timkey. There. Thanks, Cassie. Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western is going to be hot and mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a slight chance of a shower in the southwest, uh, and the winds could pick up a little as well in the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 19 and 23 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the mid to high 30s. The Lower Western will be partly cloudy, and there's a slight chance of a shower in the west. Again, a bit windy through the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures getting down to 19 to 22 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid-30s. I'm Cassie Huff. It is coming up to 12.30 on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, yes it is Cassie Half and it is wonderful to have your company today for the program. The start of the school has been quite topsy-turvy for a lot of students across not just this state, really the entire country with um, lots of uh, people doing all sorts of uh, different ways of learning at the moment and that includes boarders, boarding school students from remote remote parts of South Australia. Many have not been able to return to Adelaide yet and it's proving quite lonely for some of them. So I'll have more on how Borders are dealing with some of the changed learning conditions at the moment. And an Adelaide surgeon wants to convert reusable plastics into end-user products. Every time I operate, about nine kilograms of medical plastic waste is produced. All of that ends up being incinerated and it didn't make sense to me uh, about why that is the case. I'll have more on a solution he's working on in the next half hour. But first, to news with Emma Rebellato. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. State Liberal MP Terry Stevens won't face criminal charges over his use of parliamentary allowances, with the DPP deciding not to pursue the case. It follows a months-long ICAC investigation sparked by ABC reports which raised questions about the country MP's accommodation allowance. Fourteen local government areas in South Australia hit by the recent flooding linked to tropical cyclone Tiffany can now apply for disaster assistance. It's through the jointly funded Commonwealth State Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. Hundreds of relatives, friends and colleagues have come together to farewell CFS volunteer firefighter Louise Hinks at a funeral today. The 44-year-old was killed by a falling tree while helping to battle a forest fire near Lucendale in the state southeast last month. And overseas, members of the US Congress have held a minute silence to commemorate the 900,000 American lives lost to the COVID pandemic. The politicians gathered on the steps of the Capitol building, holding candles and listening to the US Army Chorus. We'll have more news at one o'clock. 
Thanks for that, Emma Robolato, with the news headlines. Now, uh, there has been some good news when it comes to transport in this state after what's been a, a quite a difficult time trying to get around the north of the state. The uh, Australian Rail Track Corporation has revised its opening forecast based on how the restoration works are going. They're now expecting that operations will recommence on the Trans-Australian Railway between uh, Adelaide and Tarkula from the 15th of February. An ARTC spokesperson and said the company will now work with customers to ensure that the operations can commence safely and that freight can get moving along this vital rail link connecting Western Australia and the Northern Territory as well. But uh, obviously since uh, there was flooding there, there's uh, been a lot of damage to fix along that 300-kilometre stretch of track. And uh, it's meant that a lot of freight has had to go on trucks. And you probably heard this morning about the fires in from the trucks or in the trucks at the West Australia, South Australia border. There were three trucks involved in the blaze. It broke out in that extreme heat yesterday on the air highway and uh, the cause was linked to wheel brakes or bearings and fortunately there were no injuries reported but firefighters did stay there overnight just to keep an eye on things. Now the air highway is currently the only land cargo route between Adelaide and Perth uh, given the damaged rail link and Steve Shearer from the SA Road Transport Association has been following the situation. Good afternoon. Hello, Steve. Yeah, hello. Hi, how are you going? So, yeah, good. what are the um, issues with the uh, trucks waiting at the border at the moment? It's another hot day today. Yes. Uh, over the weekend, we passed on a um, an alert from the Western Australian Government that Monday would be a catastrophic fire risk on the air highway and uh, in the Kalgoorlie area and along the highway. Um, and that unfortunately uh, made the situation at the border um, far worse with that fire. But the the main problem we've got is that the Western Australian authorities, um, the the police and the government with their rules, are just being utterly unreasonable and unnecessarily over the top. Now, they're a government, they're entitled to have these rules, but they are so far out of step and they're treating truck drivers like pariahs and causing massive queues at a time when, as you've just said, the rail's out. Um, We're carrying a hell of a lot of extra freight. Double row trains are now triple row trains pulling a third trailer, which is normally not allowed, um, across uh, the border into WA, and that's to try and keep Western Australians fed. And yet they're still making everybody queue up at the border uh, even double vaccinated uh, drivers to do rat tests and they don't care how long they keep them there. It can be hours um, and the drivers are not allowed to stay in their trucks. They've got to go to this tent and that meant that the trucks that burnt weren't attended by their drivers and had they been, then the other three trucks would have been moved very quickly and one truck would have burnt instead of four. But it is so bad. I've, I've just learnt of another Example, a driver um, who yesterday um, applied for his G2G uh, pass, which is what you need to get into WA. It was approved because he's double vaccinated. And so he headed off yesterday. He's on his way uh, to WA. And this morning at nine o'clock, he got a text message from the WA authorities saying, oh, that approval we've given you before you started the trip, that approval we've given you, we're now withdrawing because you now need to um, also have the booster jab. So they changed the rules 
and they don't care about the fact that the driver's already travelled some 900 kilometres or more. They now withdraw his permit to enter WA and he has to go and and um, get his booster. Now, that's going to take him quite some time, but it's absurd and there's no logic to it, absolutely no logic to it. Have Other you had states any contact with it. the West Australian authorities? Well, that's part of the problem here. I can talk to the Premier as often as I need to. Stephen Marshall's really good. I don't bother him unnecessarily, but on issues that I need to raise, we talk. We sort things out. I can also talk and do talk regularly with senior police and SA Health. WA, you can't do that. They just don't engage. And my counterparts in WA are tearing their hair out because they don't have the same good responsible level of access to senior uh, government officials and ministers that we have here. Um, and it, it's extraordinary. At a time when there's no rail freight, WA desperately needs what we're carrying and all the extra trips that we're, truckloads that we're taking. And there are a lot of extra trucks out there, which exacerbates the situation. And you'd think they'd say, hmm, what can we do to help facilitate this? Because we need that freight. And no. it is going to still be a week until the um, railway is yes. up, up and running. It's another hot yeah. day today. Are you concerned about a repeat of what happened yesterday? Certainly, because the, the simple fact that it's hot, you know, trucks pulling that sort of weight, all of what we call the running gear, so you know, the engine, the diff, the, the drive chain and all of that, does get very hot. The turbochargers get very hot. The wheels and the bearings and the brakes get hot. And to then pull up and sit in serious heat without the benefit of the um, air flowing uh, you know, past the truck at 90 to 100 kilometres per hour um, to help keep it all cool, it certainly increases the risk. And when you then marshal those trucks into a fairly dense formation and then take the drivers away um, and require them all to be in a tent for hours on end, uh, you're creating an unsafe situation and they need to react. A few weeks ago, the problem um, came up that in that tent where they do the rat tests, they, so they give me my rat test and they then put a little clock next to my test and they let that tick over. Well, they didn't have enough clocks. So for the, because they didn't have enough clocks, You'd think every officer's got one on their mobile phone or on their wrist, but they didn't have enough clocks, so that actually added to the delay um, substantially. This is just intolerable. And no and recourse they, at this point? You don't have any way you no, can go? No, nowhere we can go. And the reason I'm making all of these comments, I'm desperately hoping that they will pick up through the media how serious the situation is and how appalling the treatment is because we know they're not listening to our colleagues in, in WA and we really feel for the truck drivers who are doing it tough and keeping this country going and you know if you treat people like lepers consistently eventually they're going to say well that's it you know I've had enough and they walk away and the country can't afford that. Yeah, definitely need trucks moving or transport moving across this country to keep everything going. It's a big country to get things across. Thank you yeah. for explaining the situation to me. Thanks for your time.
Stephen Shearer from the SA Road Transport Association there with just a bit of an update on what was going on with those four trucks that burnt yesterday on the air highway. It sounds like it's a bit of a tricky situation at the border there for trucks at the moment. It is 20 to 1 here on the program. We're going to move away from transport now to schooling because a Year 10 student from Streaky Bay says it's been frustrating having to do homeschooling when he was meant to return to Adelaide for boarding school. This is a very keen kid to return to school. 15-year-old Jack Kelsch was meant to return last week but got an email from Sacred Heart College to tell him to remain in Streaky Bay until they knew more about the COVID rules for boarding houses. He says the school has been great with communication but he just wants to get back to the boarding house and he's speaking here with Brooke Nindorf. So about a week before school went back, Mum had a Zoom meeting with the head of boarding and the principal of Sacred Heart and they said that um, there'll be strict restrictions when we come back to the boarding house but we are to return on the Monday the next week. And then leading up to that, we were prepared to leave at 8am on the Sunday and the 4pm on the Saturday we got an email saying don't come back to the college and just do homeschool at home. They said it's just that they they just want the year 12 there as we're not one of the year levels they want back in the classrooms at the minute. So what did that mean in terms of, of what you had prepared to do? Yeah, so we had everything packed and so our car was all ready to go and I had all my stuff packed away, ready to go. And I we just had to stay home and uh, get set up everything, get my internet set up on my phone and get my computer ready to go. Being in year 10, would you have been doing schooling from the boarding house the the first couple of weeks anyway? Yes, we would have been doing it from the boarding house and the boarding house was open to our year level um, but they just highly recommended that we stay at home and quite a few people had gone back and there was a positive case there um, in the first week and so they... Because the boarding house's classes are home, they all had to come home and self-isolate for seven days. And so is there other students around your your area, around Streaky Bay, that haven't been able to get back as well? Uh, there have been some that have been able to get back but then were sent home. And there's also some that haven't been able to get back also. What has it meant for your schooling this year, this for the first few weeks? Uh, yeah, it's just been all online learning and it's been, it's a bit hard, you know, us country people we sort of like to have our own space and you know we've got our distractions with our people go off to the farm and off to the beach and you know they want you know they want to go there and um but we got to do our schooling first so there's a lot of distractions around online learning here at home what have you heard about when you can go back we've heard uh, about going back next week and so we'll probably leave on sunday and uh, uh return to the boarding house that sunday night but, um, yeah, that's all we've heard uh, is going back in the after the two weeks is up when we go back into the classroom. But it's still a bit unsure at the minute as to whether we are going to return or not. Have you heard from the school about what they, you know, what they want you to do and have they, the communication been good from the school? Uh, the communication has been good from the school. We've had multiple emails from the principal and the director of boarding about how we're going to, cope with the situation but um, there hasn't been a specific date set yet uh, due to the government not giving them much detail about how to deal with it so they are planning for us to go in the Sunday coming but um, they still need confirmation from the government as to whether they're still going to treat them as a 
home or as a um, classroom uh, in terms of close contacts and stuff like that. How frustrating has it been for your family? Uh, yeah, very straining. There's been... They haven't been strained as much, but uh, a lot of the new boarders, we've been talking with their parents and, yeah, they've been under a lot of stress getting all their clothes and stuff for the boarding house and all their bedding. Um, and then they've had to... They've got that email on that Saturday and they've had to return home. And, yeah, it's just been quite stressful for a lot of the new parents and some of the um, continuing boarders' parents as well. Yeah, it's been stressful for everyone. Sacred Heart College student Jack Kelsch speaking with Brooke Nindorf. Now, uh, it's not just Sacred Heart that's affected by this. All boarding schools around Adelaide have been dealing with issues of COVID and boarding students for... (laughs) Two years, basically, now. Simon Shepherd is the principal of Westminster School. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So have oh, the boarding schools been getting together and working out plans, or is each school doing things differently? No, no, it's been a very cohesive approach to trying to deal with the problem because we, oh, we're all interested in helping students, and we all want the boarders back here. I can totally empathise with the young gentleman from Streaky Bay growing up in Jamestown, uh, I used to look forward to getting home at the end of a school year. I've told you guys this before. But by the end of the school holidays, I couldn't wait to get back to school. And so for all these country kids who are now stuck at home, so it's the stop and start of their formal education. is a big uh, psychomatic switch when they go from being at home to being at school. So to try and work from home is really quite complex for so many kids. Often their parents need their help and will ask for it. And so the kids do that and then they can't get their schoolwork done. Obviously, all parents trying to get their kids through school at the moment uh, have issues and, and things they're juggling and struggles they're having. But are there any particular challenges with uh, with boarders staying back home? Like you've addressed sort of the loneliness, or well, not so much loneliness, but the desire to get back and hang out with your friends. But uh, beyond that, are you seeing issues with connectivity and places that just aren't set up for internet learning and things like that? Of course, we'll have those issues, especially for the kids who are really remote. <coughs> they come to boarding school to get away from school of the year because the parents realise that the social and emotional education is as important as the academic and the cognitive side. So when the kids are at school, they're learning all the time. Uh, The emotional intelligence is growing all the time as they interact with each other. So that human interface is lost immediately. But there will be connectivity issues. uh, There will be broadband issues and all sorts of technological issues which, which may arise and the kids don't have the support for. Whereas at their schools, if they have a technological issue, they can come and see the IT team or seek support. So we've got 90 of our 130, 120 boarders in, sorry, uh, with us at the moment. We had our first case overnight and dealing with the cases is quite complex because the boarding houses are being treated as, as residences, unlike a school. And so if one student catches it, the people that they cohort with are considered to be uh, as family, so go into Close isolation. Contact, yeah. That's right, yeah. So instead of having the opportunity to test to stay, as they would in, in school, uh, if they have a contact at school, they keep coming to school and show that until they show symptoms. So the kids, are, unfortunately, are being disadvantaged. And that requires quite a lot from the school's behalf as well. How do you go about isolating? Well, we could have like tens or, or all the kids having to isolate, would you, in that instance? That's That's it a very real problem that we're all facing. Some of us have um, facilities which allow us to have kids in individual rooms or two to a room or perhaps shared bathrooms so we can isolate to a certain degree by isolating portions of the boarding house. At Westminster, we've got a um, an unused house which we were, we've were we converted into an isolation 
building shall be needed when all the borders return. Uh, we've also got uh, cottages for our girls. They, they live in cottages. Their cohorts are quite a bit smaller, so we can use those cottages as well. But this is a problem that all of the schools face. You can't send the kids to a Medi hotel. In some situations, if the kids come from communities, they may not be allowed to go back to the community and they may not have a guardian in Adelaide. So the schools are left um, doing their best to take care of the children, exercising you know, a full duty of care. And, yeah, ha- having the staff to be able to... Because you'd be getting down to almost one-on-one sort of situations in some cases, having the staff that can deal with that as well. So um, how have your discussions with SA Health gone? Well, SA Health is working with us, and we hope in a very constructive manner. One of the biggest um, states for boarding in Australia is Queensland. Uh, one-third of all boarding schools are in Queensland. And Queensland Health worked very proactively with the Australian Boarding Schools Association and the schools collectively to write a paper which was somewhat different to how we're approaching things in South Australia at the moment. We've um, taken that paper collectively to SA Health with AESA, that's the representative body and the, and the principals and directors of boarding, all working very, very um, symbiotically to try and help the boarding students. So we're very hopeful that we'll have some sort of review of how we're treating things so the kids could be treated more along the lines of a, a contact as if they had it at school, test to stay, and um, only going into isolation if they're symptomatic. And when you say or test to stay, positive. are you talking PCR test or a rat test? Or rat? A rat test, yeah. So most of the boarding schools in South Australia have now moved to a surveillance testing regime, testing the kids three days a week, uh, very similar to the ELC model. So we can stay on top of things. And the one case which we've had was identified through surveillance testing. So the, the fortunate side about it is we caught it very early. The unfortunate side of it is a boy in year 12 who has um, started boarding school with us, has had a rat test in the first week. Uh, and so now he's going to miss out on up to two weeks of school uh, with direct face-to-face contact. And his peers will all miss out on five days or seven days of school um, because they cohorted with him yet they're all asymptomatic, even the boy who's got it. Right. Um, so you, you sort of alluded to, to the plan there. Do you know how many boarders have returned to schools in Adelaide beyond just Westminster? It's, it's varied. Most schools are running probably at between 30 to 50% of their boarders have returned. Right. So... And these are all kids who need to board. And the kids who might be from the city and boarding was convenient because of their parents' work regime. They've been asked not to attend in nearly every school. Okay, well, it sounds like you've got uh, a few things up in the air. How long will you know until that plan will be looked at and, and you'll get a, an answer on it? That's a terrific question. Uh, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we are being very hopeful that it's under constant review um, and we are advocating in the most positive way we can. It's very important that we, we work together on this and try and get an outcome which is student-centred as quickly as possible. Absolutely. It sounds like it's a bit of a tough time but for some of those students um, to, yeah, like with the, from what you were outlining there, being considered close contacts because they're in a living situation. I can see why that might, they might have gone with that, but there are some logistical issues with that as well. So uh, we'll keep in touch and see how things go with your negotiations with SA Health. Thank you so much for your time today. Before, before we go, I can call out to the staff who are working boarding. They do an amazing job uh, at any time of the year looking after other people's children the best they can. And at this time, there's even more stress on them. So they are, as you alluded to before, taking great care of the kids in trying trying situations. 
Absolutely. No, it's um, it's a big job to look after other people's children uh, like your own effectively. So, uh, yeah, I agree completely with uh, supporting their work. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Simon Shepherd, the principal of Westminster School, speaking there about the situation for boarding schools across Adelaide. Uh, they're dealing with issues of COVID and, and boarding students. Um, as he was saying there, some have not returned, others have had to return. So it's a bit of a movable feast at the moment, what's happening with boarders at the moment. But we'll keep you across what's happening with uh, those uh, ideas and, uh, I guess, strategies that they're taking to SA Health to manage boarding in schools. I did also mean to say that as part of that last story with the... Um, uh, Stephen Shearer regarding the West Australian government's restrictions on truck drivers. We have requested to speak to the West Australian police, but we have not heard back in time. It's eight minutes to one. Green rookie to champion in just one year. Join us in 2022 for the ultimate working dog challenge. Five pedigree puppies are matched with five passionate trainers across Australia. I do it because I love it. In a 12-month experiment to find out which of these bundles of mischief will become the champion muster dog. I think she's advanced for her age. Muster Dogs, Sunday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Adelaide Surgeon is wanting to convert reusable plastics into end-user products. He's working with the local Air Peninsula Industries to try and reduce overall waste. Abe Chandra from Sabrin Tech will look at converting plastic waste into bricks and then converting those bricks into other products using techniques such as injection moulding and 3D printing. And this is all happening in Port Lincoln. Mr Chandra says he wants the trial well, he wants to trial this technology on the Air Peninsula because of the number of industries that have reusable plastic waste, such as healthcare, fisheries and agriculture. I suppose it started a couple of years ago where I found that um, every time I operate, about nine kilograms of medical plastic waste is produced. All of that ends up being incinerated, and it didn't make sense to me uh, about why that is the case. And surely this highly purified plastic that's polypropylene can be remanufactured to make new products as feedstock for the manufacturing supply chain. It all started from there, really. And so you've, you've come to Port Lincoln, and it's not just medical waste that you're looking at, but a, a wide range of, of areas and industries you're looking to work with. Yes. What happened was one of my patients, who's a professional fisher person, she, she runs her own fishing company, had told me that there's a, uh, a lot of fishing nets in Port Lincoln, Port Lincoln having the largest uh, fishing fleet in the Southern Hemisphere. So I had focused predominantly on medical plastic waste, but I hadn't thought really about non-medical soft plastic waste. And um, it makes complete sense in retrospect, but at that time it just hadn't clicked to me. And there's lots of other products as well. You're looking at uh, agriculture and, and the, the building industry that, uh, that produce this kind of waste. Yes, um, uh, so once the old cog started turning, it started to make sense that medical industry is not the only thing in the world and uh, there's a whole lot of things that happen around it. So agriculture, building, tourism, 
um, aquaculture and a whole lot that I'm not sure about at the moment. But, but all of those things that make uh, plastic pollution a global problem and all of those things that contribute significantly to greenhouse gas emission and global warming and uh, all of the other extreme nature events are all linked in some way. So I'm just trying to do my little bit to make at least a little bit of a difference to something. When you eventually get to that next step and have things up and running here in Port Lincoln, what are you hoping to do? Do you collect all the the waste together, put it into one big piece of machinery and turn it into something else? Is that essentially the idea? What we're trying to get Sabrin to represent is not a waste reutilisation company. We are essentially a manufacturing and remanufacturing uh, company. Our objective is to to see raw plastic that cannot be used and transform it into a usable product. Whether it be in the process of remanufacturing into alternate products by advanced manufacturing systems such as 3D printing or reconfiguring it with um, pyrolysis types of technologies to create high-value materials such as activated carbon and hydrogen. So essentially could the community of Port Lincoln be seeing uh, fishing ropes or fishing nets or agricultural plastic being turned into something down the track that can be reused or reconfigured? We are trying to have it completely community-focused. The problem that exists at the moment is centralisation of all all services, essentially, well, in this particular case, waste uh, management. What we're trying to do is decentralise it back to the community so that the community has some autonomy over what it can do with its waste products. Sabrin is trying to get plastic raw materials from the Port Lincoln and Air Peninsula community have it reprocessed, whether by remanufacturing or reconfiguration, for use back by the community, whether it be the tourism industry, whether it be aquaculture or agriculture. The end user should ideally be the citizens of Port Lincoln and the Air Peninsula. Anything in excess that is developed here can be exported to other parts of South Australia. But essentially the idea is that we create a micro-ecosystem that exists in Port Lincoln and the Air Peninsula for the benefit of its community. Ideally what we want to try and do is take that micro-ecosystem and transplant it into another point, um, uh, another area, so that those same benefits can be achieved by that particular community and we can reproduce this over and over and over again regardless of where we are in Australia. Sabrin Tech Managing Director Abe Chandra speaking with Brooke Nindorf there. Some very interesting research. Another person who's very interesting is Sonia Felter. There you go. Now that's set the expectations high, hasn't it? Um, Cass, coming up on the program today, we know that uh, we're seeing a, a brand new development around Adelaide's central market. Now this is it has sparked a bit of controversy. Uh, they, they've appointed a builder now and it's expected to get going in the middle of the year. But will some of the traders who have been told they'll be helped to move even last till then under 
the current restrictions. Right. We'll explore that today. And have you ever had too much of something? Oh, yes. Too Regularly. much. Too much chocolate. <laughs> too much ice cream. Well, uh, we're talking about too much in a different way. We'd love to hear your stories. <laughs> Sonia Feldhoff coming up on your local radio. That's all I have time for. It's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.